We're in Acts chapter 5. We're going to cover verses 12 through 42. Right now, we are in the midst of a, a wonderful season for sports. Uh, we are in the middle of March Madness, which is always fun. Baseball is actually starting back up. Uh, basketball and hockey are heading into playoff season. There's trades and signings going on in the NFL. There's all sorts of stuff going on in sports season. And one of the things I love about sports, and I loved about playing sports back when I was you know, physically able to do so, um, what was the high-pressure situations, those Situations where there's a lot of pressure and it's dependent upon one person to um, succeed or crack under that pressure. There has actually been some research into determining what causes people to crack under pressure. Uh, somebody by the name of Cyan Leah Baylock, she actually did a TED Talk on this, I think, and she uh, did some studies trying to figure out like, what causes people to crack under high-pressure situations and not succeed. And one of the things that she determined from her studies was that there's actually a, a cause of failing under pressure, which might surprise you, is over-focus. Oh, paying too much attention, focusing too hard on what you're doing. So one of the experiments she ran is she had soccer players dribble a soccer ball, and then she w had them pay attention to which side of the foot was hitting the soccer ball as they dribbled. And what they found as they ran the study is that when soccer players focused on which side was hitting their foot, they dribbled more slowly and made more mistakes. The more they focused on the minute details of what they were doing, the more mistakes they made. And what's better in an athletic competition is when you're really almost not thinking at all. And anybody who's played sports or been in a high-pressure situation knows that feeling when you're just in the flow. You're not even really thinking about it. Things just seem to be working. Your body's clicking and you're not... Not even really focusing all that much. You're just doing naturally, almost on autopilot, what you want to do. And that's how you succeed, maybe athletically, in high-pressure situations. I bring up this thought of cracking under pressure in high-pressure environments because as we go through the book of Acts and where we are this morning, we're going to see that the pressure upon the apostles and the pressure upon the church is increasing. They're in a high-pressure situation. The pressure is growing. The forces upon them are growing. And we're going to hit a boiling point here in a couple chapters with Stephen, as we'll see. But here, in the flow of the narrative, pressure is mounting. And the question is, how will they respond to that pressure? How will the apostles and the church respond to the pressure that's put upon them, the pressure to stop their ministry, their pressure to stop preaching Jesus? Will they abandon their mission? And what we find is that no matter what pressure is put upon them, they will continue preaching the name of Jesus. So I'll sum up really the whole essence of this chapter, verses 12 through 42, this way. A growing opposition cannot stop gospel mission. I think if we want to take away anything from this, we can take away that. That growing opposition cannot stop gospel mission. There's a long passage of some familiar themes and events. The apostles are put on trial once again. I'm going to break it up into three sections, showing how pressure is put upon the apostles, and also we'll see how God will carry them through and ensure that the mission does not stop that growing opposition cannot stop gospel mission. 
We see that first in verses 12 through 21. I label this section here, the, the apostles are miraculously ministering. That's what's going on in verses 12 through 21. The apostles are miraculously ministering. They are teaching and healing in the power of the Spirit. Miraculous things are happening all around. And a church is growing, which is a great encouragement, because if you remember the context of where we were last time we checked in Acts, what happened? A couple people died. They were put to death by God as a form of discipline. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira lied about how much they were giving to try and make themselves look good as a form of discipline. God removed them from the church. They were put to death on the spot. And then the church is standing there in awe and fear of God and his holiness. And then we turn the page and what is happening? The church is growing. That power, that awe of God and his holiness is still there. In fact, that is what is driving the church to grow. And here the apostles are miraculously ministering. Verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they're all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least a shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. You know, see that the focus of this paragraph, will stop there, is really all about the miraculous ministry of the apostles, that they were healing in the power of the Spirit. And miraculous healings were being done, people bringing people on cots and mats to be healed by Peter and the apostles. And one of the questions that's popped up, and I brought this up a couple weeks ago, this may not um, cause you any tension at all, but it does me as I read through the book of Acts, and I see things like this happening, and I wonder, okay, we don't see that in the church today. Like, Why? And I ask the question, should we? These kind of concentrated, miraculous healings and events and miracles, it's not a normal part of our church life and existence, or at least it hasn't been for me. So I ask the question, is that supposed to be that way? Something I ponder as I go through Acts. Because this is unusual. I'm pretty convinced that God still heals people miraculously. I'm also convinced that this is unusual. That this kind of concentrated regularity of the miraculous here that we see in Acts is maybe not normal. And maybe not what we should expect and anticipate in the church. It reminds me, honestly, of Jesus' own ministry in Luke 4. Luke 4 40 through 41, now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, you are the son of God. So it's kind of the summary statement of Jesus' ministry where everybody who was brought to him was healed and he cast out demons. And it appears that the apostles were carrying on in the same kind of ministry as Jesus, with the same kind of power of the Spirit to heal and to cast out. And I think there's something significant about this. If you pay attention, it says it was being done by the hands of the apostles. And this might explain why we don't normally see this same kind of 
regular pattern of miraculous healing today. Something to pay attention throughout Acts, just as we go through it, just pay attention and ask, who's doing the miraculous healing? I think I'll propose this, and then we'll see as we go through Acts, it might be disproven, but I'll put out a hypothesis that is almost exclusively the apostles themselves who are doing a lot of the miracles and signs that are in line with what Jesus was doing. I think, again, maybe as we go through Acts, this will be disproven. But just something to pay attention as you read. I think it's mostly the apostles doing this. It's very clear in this passage. It's not the whole church. It's not every Christian. This isn't to be a standard thing that every Christian does. You're not a Christian if you can't do miraculous healings and signs, right? It's a work done by the apostles at a specific time, at the beginning of the church, to establish the continuation of Jesus' ministry through the apostles and the church. With the apostles no longer being around, it may be that we should not expect and anticipate this kind of ongoing thing. Not that God doesn't miraculously heal still, and from time to time you might see flurries of it, but I don't think this is to be the ongoing expectation of the church. It is an amazing thing that's happening here at this moment where everybody is bringing sick and everybody's healed. There are some of you who are just hoping to touch Peter's shadow. Luke doesn't say whether or not people were actually healed by Peter's shadow. He just notes that there was an expectation that maybe if they touched Peter's shadow, they'd be healed. So whether they were healed by Peter's shadow or not, I don't know. I don't think Luke is clear on that. But at the very least, there was the expectation, if we can just get close enough to the apostles and to Peter, then we might be healed. And the expectation was met. All were healed. The church is growing. Men and women are being included together, the people of God being added to the church. And now people are hearing about this from beyond Jerusalem. Remember Jesus' commission to the apostles. You will be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem, and then to Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Here, the gospel, the message of Jesus, starting to grow, and starting to get out. Luke also mentions, though, some did not dare to join them. While all this powerful ministry is going on, there are some who are hesitant about joining up with the apostles. And the question is, is this referring to non-Christians who were afraid to join the church, or is this a reference to Christians, the church, who are afraid to join the apostles in their ministry? You can interpret that either way. I actually think it's the latter. The way it's worded here, I think what Luke is saying is that there were Christians, they're part of the church, who are kind of afraid to join up with the apostles in their ministry. Why? Remember what had just happened. A couple of people had just been killed. Miraculous stuff is going on. There is an awe and a sense of even discomfort around the church and what the apostles are doing, what's going on in this ministry. And I find that compelling. Luke clearly records, there's some fear here. People are hesitant to join up with this. It's not all ease and comfort. People are recognizing there's something really powerful going on, which I do think is instructive for us as a church. Why? Because I have grown up in the American evangelical church, and I think it has been ingrained in me all my life that the way to be evangelistic and the way to grow a church is to make everybody as comfortable as possible. And I think that's wrong. 
every church growth book, marketing strategy, whatever it is, will talk about how you've got to have the, everything right, chairs right, color of the carpet right, bathroom towels, everything. You have to have all the nicest amenities so that people will come and feel comfortable in church. Like This kind of stuff has been just ingrained into our thinking, so I don't even think we question it most of the time. We just assume that everybody should come and feel, well, like this is just like home. It's like sitting in my lazy boy. I feel so comfortable here at church. I'm not sure that's what we should be shooting for. I'm not saying we should intentionally make people uncomfortable. I am saying what draws people in, what grows a church, and what uh, makes a church holy before God is the presence of God himself, who, in which is sometimes not comfortable. And our aspiration as a church should not be to provide the most pleasant environment possible. Our aspiration as a church should be a church where God is present, and sometimes that means we're uncomfortable. And sometimes that means we are confronted with the presence of God as we gather and are in this place together. Sometimes we open up our scriptures and we find that we are not comfortable with what we see, that we are actually provoked. That doesn't mean, again, I'm not saying we should intentionally poke others or we should intentionally be rude or be uncomfortable with one another, but we should be pursuing the presence of God because where he is, awesome things happen. And when awesome things happen, it isn't always easy or comfortable, but people are drawn in and they're intrigued because they don't see that anywhere else. And that's what's happening here. There is a mixture of both dread and excitement. The meeting with the people of God. And the rulers of Israel seek to stop it. Because they know something significant is happening. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So here the high priest enters, that's Caiaphas, a man by the name of Caiaphas, and the Sadducees. The Sadducees were one of the religious parties in Israel, and they had kind of controlling power of the council in Jerusalem. If you remember from the Sadducees, what do we know about the Sadducees theologically? They did not believe in the resurrection. At the end, they didn't believe that people were raised to new life, so they were sad, you see. You know, make that joke. They didn't believe in the resurrection, so they had a problem with the apostles' teaching resurrection, that Jesus was resurrected. But if you pay close attention here, you'll note that it is not their theological teaching that this group of rulers is upset with. Why do they seek to arrest the disciples? Jealousy. That's the real reason they have a problem with this group of Christians. They're jealous. This is a theme that will pop up later, and it's kind of woven through this text. But it's a question of, whose name will you live for? The apostles very clearly in the church is living for the name of Jesus. This high priest and the council, on the other hand, are jealous. Why? 
who is this Jesus that is receiving all this attention, this group that's receiving all this attention and following, we've got to put a stop to that. It's a threat to their own name, to their own power, to their own status. They are jealous for their own name, for their own position. So they seek to put a stop to the apostles. They arrest them, put them in a public prison, likely with all the riffraff in town. One thing to note here, who do they arrest? The apostles. The whole lot of them. Before, it was just Peter and John. Now you get the impression that they're expanding their persecution, if you will. As I said, things are, the pressure is rising, reaching a boiling point. The attack on the church is expanding, growing. Now all the apostles are arrested. But God preserves them. An angel of the Lord miraculously opens the doors and allows their escape. So their miraculous ministry is able to continue because God allows it. Even if they're arrested, God will ensure that, according to his timetable, his people will minister. The angel charged them, in fact, to keep ministering, to keep speaking and teaching in the name of Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. I can be one of my great flaws. There are many. One of my flaws is I can be a bit of a procrastinator. And my wife will tell you this, that it takes me a while to go from concept to action, right? If you're like me, you're a procrastinating person, then you put things off a little bit until you're forced to. Here the apostles do not procrastinate whatsoever. It says, at daybreak, as soon as the sun comes up, they're back in the temple, teaching and ministering. There is no delay. Arrested one day, back ministering the next by God's grace. They get right back to it because growing opposition cannot stop gospel mission. Though the council is going to try and stop them. We see that in the next section, this group of apostles is going to be put on trial. The apostles are tried and testify. This will look familiar because we've already seen this once. The apostles tried and testifying before the council, and now they're going to be tried and testify once again. The apostles are tried and testify. Verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Have you ever not been prepared for a meeting? You're at a meeting and you thought you had something, but you left it at home. That experience is what the council is going to have now, because the high priest is going to call them together. All right, we're going to put these men on trial. Just bring them out. And we're going to try and convict them for teaching the name of Jesus, which we previously told them not to do. The court ordered them not to teach the name of Jesus. We're going to hold them in contempt of court 
because they keep teaching. So bring them out and then we'll try them and then they have a problem. The apostles aren't there. Captain and the officers go to the jail cell, the prison where they're supposed to be, and lo and behold, the room is empty. The doors were locked, the guards were in front. Somehow, they escaped. It reminds me a little bit, actually, of the empty tomb. How did this happen? Weren't there guards? Wasn't the door sealed? They're not there. Where do they find them? The apostles are not hard to find. They didn't flee. They just went back right where they were before. Teaching and ministering at the temple. Those of you who are homeowners or have rented homes and maybe you've experienced an infestation that won't go away, I'm pretty sure a home that my wife and I rented in Portland was sitting right on top of like the epicenter of all anthills in Portland. I'm pretty sure it was nestled right there at the hub. Because we had ants that would not go away, no matter what we tried and how many different traps and poisons or whatever we used, they just always came back. And it's like a, if you've ever seen a horror movie with a doll or something that's an evil doll and they try and throw it away in the trash and somehow it ends up on the bed still. Where did this come from? We tried to get rid of it. It keeps coming back. That's what the apostles were to the council. The apostles were an infestation in Jerusalem that they could not get rid of. Every time they tried to pull, pull away, they come back. And there they are, once again, teaching and ministering in the name of Jesus. The council had an apostle infestation in Jerusalem, so they're trying to get rid of them. But notice how they take them back in. Without force. They go and grab them, but they're not going to take them in by force. Why? When you spend your time healing everybody who comes to you, there's going to be a lot of allegiance <laughs> that the people have with the apostles. And the council knows if they bring these apostles in by force, the people might revolt. And we'll talk about it in a few minutes. There's a history of revolting around Jerusalem. So the guards take them in without force, which means something I think significant. It means that the apostles went in humbly and submissively and peacefully. They didn't fight back. They didn't try and start a revolt themselves, even though they had the favor of the people, even though they were likely being led to slaughter. That possibility had to exist in their minds. They did not fight back, but went in peacefully, submissively, willingly. I think this is important for us. And we'll keep seeing this theme throughout Acts. The apostles in the church never respond to persecution with violence. It's important for us because I think we see in our culture an increasing ease with violence. In our world around us, people feel more and more justified to act violently or aggressively for their rights or for their causes. And if we are not careful, there's a real possibility of that disease infecting the church. 
and for us to think that we are justified in our causes and in our beliefs to take up arms and fight back and fight for the church. Let us heed the example of the apostles who go peacefully to their trial and possibly their deaths. They go to testify, testify before the council, before their oppressors, if you will, those who judge them. And notice what they do in this next section. The apostles present the gospel to them. They stay on mission, even seeking the salvation of those who try them. When confronted, when pressed, when put under pressure, they speak about Jesus and offer eternal life in him. Verse 27. When they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. According to the New York Post in May of 2020, a Canadian teenager was busted for speeding in his dad's Mercedes. He was driving on a road or highway close to Niagara Falls. Now that in and of itself was not newsworthy. The reason this made the news is because of his speed. He was glowing, going close to 200 miles per hour. They clocked him at 191. The stated speed limit in kilometers, is in Canada, was 100 kilometers per hour. He was going 308. The Post noted that many commercial jetliners take off at speeds below what he was driving. Now, I'm sure... This young man was justly convicted and had all sorts of consequences. And yet, if you're this kid, you frame that speeding ticket, right? Is anybody with me? Like, you may be caught and you may have to pay some penalties, but you at least get video proof of that and you kind of wear that charge as a badge of honor. <laughs> like, yes, I accomplished that. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks that way. But there are some accusations, some charges that you might be tempted to, to wear as a badge of honor. And I would say that what the apostles are charged with here, they should wear as a badge of honor, and may we receive the same charge. What is the charge? We strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Here's the charge. You filled this city with the name of Jesus. That is a charge you could wear as a badge of honor. May we be charged the same way. You have filled this whole city with your teaching, which was the name of Jesus Christ. 
And the council's also a little upset. You keep putting his blood at our feet. How does Peter, how do the apostles respond to that? Guilty as charged. In fact, we'll tell it to you again. They take this opportunity to speak the gospel, words of the gospel. One of the questions we may ask you in membership interviews, maybe you remember this, is what is the gospel? And that's actually a challenging question to answer. I know because many of you have tried. <laughs> you know, and many of us are, oh, I don't know, how do I explain the gospel? If you don't know how to explain what the gospel is in a succinct way, I'd recommend studying through Acts and looking at where the apostles are put on trial because they will always speak the gospel. And they'll give elements of the gospel as they testify. And that's exactly what Peter and the apostles do here. Look at the elements of the gospel they present before the council. First, they note that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. He said, the God of our fathers. So he's saying, we're part of the same faith, right? God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That God raised Jesus from the dead. So first, they speak to the resurrection of Jesus. And if Jesus is resurrected, that implies that he was also killed. And they said, you hanged him on a tree. That wording is specific. Peter speaks about Jesus' death as crucifixion. He says, you hanged him on a tree. Deuteronomy 21, 22 through 23 says that everyone in Israel who was hanged on a tree is cursed. Peter's alluding to that. And he's saying, Jesus was cursed. He had the curse laid upon him in our place. Peter's alluding to the substitutionary atonement of Jesus where the curse was put upon him as he was hanged on a cross. Then after he was resurrected, Jesus was exalted and ascended. God, the Father exalted him, seated him at his right hand as leader and savior. That word leader can be translated ruler, chief, founder, prince. But Peter is essentially saying that Jesus now reigns as both savior and Lord as our king, as the founder, as, as the one whom our faith revolves around. And Peter says we are witnesses to these things. So here's what J Peter has told them. Here's the gospel truth that Peter's presented to them. Jesus was crucified and died, taking on the curse for us. Jesus was resurrected, appearing to us as his witnesses. And Jesus was exalted and ascended, now reigning with the Father in heaven as Lord and Savior. There's his gospel presentation through his testimony. And now he also concludes with an opportunity to respond. He says, Jesus has also brought with him, gifted to Israel, repentance and forgiveness of sins. Here's how you can apply the truth of the gospel to yourself and find salvation. And to know him as Savior. Repent and be forgiven. This is the gift Jesus has brought us. Repentance and forgiveness. What I love about this is the apostles on trial present the gospel, including an opportunity to find repentance and forgiveness. Even as they're attacked and harassed, the apostles are giving, or at least attempting to give life to their enemies. 
in this life, in this world, you may feel at times attacked or harassed, persecuted, however you want to put it, like pressure is put upon you. Notice what the apostles do in that moment. They take every opportunity to present life and salvation. I don't think they see the council as their enemies. They see the council as sinners who need salvation. The other day I heard a quote from a guy I really have come to love, at least through his teaching and his writing, a guy by the name of Sam Alberry. He's a Christian author and minister who has dealt with same-sex attraction kind of all his life, and he's written on that subject. He wrote a book, actually a wonderful book, called Is God Anti-Gay? And in an interview the other day, he, they were talking about that book, and somebody asked him the question, so here's the title of the book, you know, is God anti-gay? How do you answer that? Is God against gay people? Sam's first response, the first thing he said was right on. He said this, God is not anti-anyone he's offering his son to. It's so good. I'll repeat it. God is not anti-anyone he's offering his son to. And there may come a time of judgment later for sinners and all that, but for right now, in this world here and now, God is offering his son to all sinners, even this council. And the apostles know that. So when they're pressed and squeezed, they respond with, have you considered Jesus? God is not against you if he's offering his son to you. They were witnesses in every context, offering the Son to those who would oppress. You say we are witnesses. The Holy Spirit is a witness as well, whom God has given to us, to anyone who obeys God. God gives his Spirit. I think this is the line that may be set off the council. We're going to see that the council is very angry at them. I think this might be the line that did it. Because the implication is, we who follow Jesus have the Spirit and are obedient to God. We're offering you a chance to also come to Jesus and be obedient to God and have the Spirit. There's a contrast set up there, and I think that's what angers. The council angers their pride, so they respond angrily wanting to kill the apostles. What was their response to the last time the apostles were put on trial? Do you remember how the council responded? They were kind of amazed. You almost get the sense they were amused. Who are these untrained fishermen? They would speak so boldly and courageously. This is interesting. They're no longer amused. The council has gone from amused and amazed to just angered, wanting to put them to death. But God intervenes. And that's what happens in verses 34 through 42. By the sovereign care of God, the apostles are preserved and persecuted. Growing opposition cannot stop gospel mission, so the apostles are preserved and persecuted. Verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, 
stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or if this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. We're now introduced to a man named Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee who was part of the ruling council. He was a respected man. He's known in history, actually, the Mishnah, which is kind of a, a collection of oral traditions and writings in the Jewish faith that uh, was being compiled around this time and later. The Mishnah actually refers back to Gamaliel. says, when Rabbi Gamaliel, the elder, died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. Uh, so the Jewish community thought highly of Gamaliel. A well-known, respected teacher, and in fact, Acts 22.3 tells us Gamaliel was Paul's teacher. Paul was well taught because his teacher was Gamaliel. He was the kind of respected authority and teacher at the time, and he gives his wisdom. He says, excuse the apostles for a second before we kill them. Let's consider this. He provides two reasons not to kill the apostles. One, I think, is actually a very good reason. The other, we'll see. Well, the first reason Gamaliel gives is that he says, movements led by men don't tend to last once the leader dies. These types of movements, they tend to fizzle out. Gamaliel seems to be speaking from some experience. That there are a lot of revolts, there were a lot of revolts, through these years in Jerusalem and in Israel. Remember the context, they're under the thumb of Rome. So during this Roman occupation, while puppet kings were set up in Jerusalem and Israel by Rome, there were a number of people who wanted to be the Messiah, who wanted to be the liberator of the Israelites and revolt and bring down their Roman oppressors. Gamaliel brings up two of them. Uh, if you look through history, there are actually a, a number of, I think there are three different Simons and uh, several different um, Judas's, uh, people repeatedly tried to lead revolts. These are two more notable ones that actually gained a following, and then they were crushed and put down, the leader killed, and the people scattered. And Gamaliel's point is that these man-made movements, once the leader dies, they tend to fizzle out. It shouldn't be a problem. Sooner or later, this will die. Now, I think his wisdom there is flawed. Because it's not necessarily true that all man-made movements fizzle out. For example, Mormonism. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young died long ago, but that movement continues on. Islam. The Prophet Muhammad died a long time ago, and yet the movement that follows him continues on. So it's not necessarily historically true that once the leader is dead, the movement fizzles out. But there's a bigger flaw in Gamaliel's argument here. That is, the leader of this movement is not dead. Jesus is alive and resurrected and reigning. 
which is why this movement will not fail. Because Jesus rules over all. Gamaliel's second line of reasoning is far better. It says, if this thing happens to be of God, it won't be stopped. That's where he's right. If this movement is of God, it will not fail. And you might find yourself opposing God. It appears Gamaliel never took his own advice and and never sided with the apostles. He should have. He stayed wishy-washy. But what he says here is absolutely true. If God is behind this, this thing cannot be stopped. If Jesus really is Lord, then his people will continue on and the mission will go forward. This is what gives me all the confidence in the world about the church. It is not my involvement with the church. It is not your involvement with the church that gives me ultimate confidence in the church. It is the fact that our Lord reigns and God has instituted this people to succeed and ensured that they will. It is why I have an unceasing optimism about the church. That as we stumble our way around and try and figure out what's next and make plans and make adjustments to those plans and pray and seek God's will, I am forever confident that as long as we are seeking the Lord and preaching Christ and trusting his word and obedient to his spirit, that we will succeed in the mission God has given us. I kind of don't understand Christians who aren't all in on the church. I think if you weren't completely sold out and bought in and excited about what the Lord is doing through his church, I think you just might not know Jesus well enough. Because this is the people that Jesus died for. This is the people who are promised to be united with him, spotless forever. This is the people that Jesus is ruling and reigning over. There is 0% chance that the church will fail. This little house might be shut down at some point. But the bride of Christ will live and the mission will go on. So I am bought in on the church because of what Gamaliel says here. If God is for it, nobody will be able to stop it. And he's right. And we see that in the apostles as they are released. And nobody can stop them from doing what God has called them to do. Verse 39 through 42. They took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus. The council takes the advice of Gamaliel. They they let them go. They beat the apostles, probably gave them the customary 39 lashes. Uh, If you don't know why 39 lashes was custom, Old Testament law stated that you couldn't go over 40 lashes when beating or disciplining. So it became custom to do 39. That way, if you miscounted, you had some wiggle room. Right? 
don't want to go over 40. So they gave him 39, and Paul, Paul the Apostle experienced that. I'm assuming the apostles did here as well. They were charged not to speak in the name of Jesus. So what do they do? They speak in the name of Jesus. And they go away rejoicing. Now, if it was me, I might go away differently. Having been beaten, I might question and wonder, why, God, did you allow this? How come? And, and I might be a complainer. I'm prone to complaining, prone to grumbling. God, where were you? How come you didn't stop that? Apostles didn't appear to ask any of those questions. They went away happily, rejoicing, praising God. Why? Because their ultimate priority was not their own comfort, their own safety, their own health and wealth. Their ultimate priority was the name of Jesus Christ. And they had just received proof that they belonged to Jesus. Their persecution was a sign to them that we have been counted with Jesus Christ. I don't think I've ever received outright persecution. Maybe someday we will. I don't know. I've talked to somebody who I believe has and experienced mocking and scorn and persecution for their faith. And in talking to them about that, they said, looking back on it, said it's actually a comfort. Almost as if they cherished it. Why? Because it was an assurance that I am walking with my Lord because I know my Lord was crucified. And to be persecuted along with him is an honor to suffer for his name. I said earlier, the council was all about their name. They were jealous. The apostles were all about the name of Jesus Christ. So I'll end with a question for you. Whose name are you living for? This is a question for all of us. I want to ask it specifically in suburban Midwestern America where there are all sorts of temptations to live for our own names. I want to ask you how you order your life, what priorities you set in place. Those of you with kids, what do you desire for them? Is your priority that your kids would grow up successful and well-known, educated, reputable? Those things aren't bad, but my warning to you is that those things aren't necessarily Christian. And if your desire... And if you order your life such that I will be well-reputed, well-liked, successful, if that is your aim in life, you may find yourself at odds with the Lord who called you to serve him. The American dream is not necessarily Christian. This text, I believe, is a call for all of us to crucify ourselves and lay down whatever reputation, whatever status we may have for the sake of following Jesus Christ and suffering for his name wherever that may take us. The most important thing to the apostles living for the name of Jesus Christ. That is their highest priority. May it be our priority as well and our great concern even if our reputation and status need to be crucified, that the greatest honor we have is living for Jesus Christ. If we do that, we know we will be preserved by God and there will be victory in the end. Because nothing can stop this mission of the church. Do you pray with me?
But Father and God, I pray that you would rearrange our priorities, our values, our desires, so that our ultimate priority is just to belong to Jesus Christ, to be identified with, associated with him, wherever that leads us, that we would take every opportunity to um, make him known. Even if it brings um, trial upon us, rejection, Lord, that we would have um, comfort and peace and strength in you, endurance in you, to know that what, ma- what matters most is that we have been called by your grace. May we live for you by your grace, Lord, by your spirit, we pray. Amen.